This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we like to focus on issues of human health on this show, but animal health can often be a canary in the coal mine. And we're watching with some real concern the expanding outbreak of bird flu in the country. And several strains of avian flu have shown up across the country now. Tens of millions of birds have been destroyed. The turkey population especially hard hit in the Midwest. And now egg growers are sounding an alarm. Seems to be spreading rapidly through hen and other bird populations as well. It's important to note that unlike previous bird flu outbreaks in Asia, the strain present in this country have not mutated into the threat to humans yet. But at the moment, uh, the outbreak uh, shows no sign of abating in multiple poultry species, and it's being monitored very closely by the USDA and the CDC. Keeping the country's food stream safe and free from harmful pathogens is a vital public health obligation and really an ongoing challenge for these federal agencies, including the FDA, which, of course, is tasked with ensuring drug safety as well, something our guest today is quite familiar with. And that quest for safeguarding the American public can often make the drug approval process impossibly long and frustrating and cost prohibitive. Well, Margaret Anderson is the executive director of Faster Cures, a nonprofit that's dedicated to improving drug and medical research systems to work faster and more efficiently than they have up until now. She'll talk about the threats to ongoing NIH research with the reduction in financial support from Congress, but she'll also talk about how new technologies are poised to accelerate the pace of drug discovery and development. Lori Robertson checks in, as she does every week. The managing editor of factcheck.org is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, but no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter. We love to hear from you. We'll get to our interview with Margaret Anderson in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Florida Governor Rick Scott sees a state shutdown looming come July 1st, steadfastly refusing to expand Medicaid in his state, in spite of warnings from the federal government that billions of hospital dollars would be lost to the state as a result. Scott has now sent a memo to all state agency heads, making a list of all non-essential expenditures and warning entire agencies could be shut down as a result. Scott leading a dwindling pack of state leaders across the country who have refused to expand Medicaid coverage for their residents living closer to the poverty line. And Alaska's governor has been dealt a blow by the legislature who refused measures to expand Medicaid in that state. The measure was blocked in the GOP-controlled House Finance Committee. A rite of passage for the over-50 crowd, colonoscopies are required screenings and have done much to bring down the death rate from the common form of cancer, other than the unpleasant process of the preparation and screening itself. Under the Affordable Care Act, more Americans are seeking screenings because it's covered. The federal government decided to remove another barrier to the screening for some, the cost of anesthesia. Some insurers weren't covering that cost. The Fed said anesthesia, which often accompanies colonoscopies, must be covered as well. California's legislature has passed a bill eliminating personal beliefs as a reason for opting out of vaccinating their children. The law restricts families opposed to vaccines for personal beliefs as not reason enough to put their children and the larger population at risk for preventable childhood diseases like measles, mumps, and rubella. 
A South Carolina self-employed Republican opposed to the Affordable Care Act found himself on the brink of bankruptcy and diabetes-related blindness after a series of strokes caused bleeding in his eyes and his savings were exhausted in the emergency room treatments. It also left him without enough money and without coverage for the surgery required to save his eyesight. Though still opposed to the health care law, he made a public plea for help. He received generous donations from an interesting source, self-described progressives donating thousands to cover his surgery, saying they hope he's learned his lesson. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Margaret Anderson, Executive Director of Faster Cures, an action tank at the Milken Institute dedicated to removing barriers to medical progress by speeding up the medical research system. She's the founding board member and past president of the Alliance for a Stronger FDA, is a member of the NIH National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences Advisory Council. Previously, Ms. Anderson was the deputy director in the Center on AIDS and Community Health at the Academy for Educational Development. Sanderson holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Maryland and a master's degree in science, technology, and public policy from George Washington University. Margaret, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and you just got back from the Milken Institute's annual global conference, and that's always a great gathering of luminaries and influencers. And you oversaw the medical research and public health track covering issues on from food security to digital health. And I wonder if you could share with our listeners some of the more exciting ideas heard at the conference and how do they illustrate the overall mission of the global conference as well as the mission of the Institute? It's a gathering that brings together over 3,000 of the world's leading visionaries in all different sectors from business and finance uh, to government, and that isn't just uh, the United States government, but globally. I mean, there was the president of Rwanda there, um, former Prime Minister Tony Blair, you know, scientists, academia, philanthropy, and really try to press on what are some of the solutions to things that, uh, you know, kind of need to be addressed. So one of the themes this year that was exciting kind of at a, at a higher level is um, a lot of discussion about making the world a better place for women and girls. And those conversations ranged from, you know, tackling discrimination to pay inequality issues, to um, you know, programs to address the lack of education for women and girls worldwide. You know, how is mobile technology? You know, looking at banking and, and trying to make the um, banking infrastructure more accessible for all people in the world. But in particular, as you said, I I worked on the medical research track, and I would say those conversations were clustered around uh, a few main themes the elevation of medical research onto the national policy agenda would be one. Uh, The second would be the evolution that we've witnessed of patients' roles in the healthcare delivery system and research system, going from being very sort of passive recipients of care or treatments um, into much more active and engaged partners. Um, Next, I would say it, it was about the power, promise, and, you know, sort of future of precision medicine. So the, you know, sort of solutions-oriented nature of that is really emblematic of the Milken Institute's work and and Faster Cures, and we're a part of that. Um, I'd like to, Margaret, maybe focus on your division of Faster Cures. It has a specific mission of its own within the context of the 
larger organization and, and have this goal to remove barriers to medical progress by speeding up the medical research system. You've worked inside several institutions that govern medical research from Congress to the National Institutes of Health and beyond. What have some of the great challenges been, and, and why do you think the time is ripe for revamping the medical and health research process? So of the 10,000 known deadly and debilitating diseases that affect the world today, only about 500 of those have effective treatments. Faster Cures focuses on the biomedical research enterprise. We also know that you know, bringing any kind of a new therapeutic forward from you know, the beginning of discovery in basic science to the marketplace is a very long, laborious road. It's expensive. It's, it takes, on average, 15 years, over a billion dollars, um, to, just to bring one therapy forward from discovery to patients. So there's a high failure rate, and that's just part of the game. So, you know, Dr. Francis Collins, who's the director of the National Institutes of Health, will say that the, the paradox here is we're living in this crazy time where there's a scientific agenda that's catapulting forward with an engine that's kind of running on too little fuel. So, you know, we look at faster cures at a variety of things that we think are emblematic of the change that the system, you know, needs to make because we think the time is now. I really do think that there's there's sort of this unique moment that we're looking at where the scientific promise is accelerating at a pace that I think is staggering and we need to make sure the system's ready for it. You know, I want to pull the thread on your uh, reflection on Dr. Collins' statement that we're running out of fuel. And you laid out some of the groundwork of this as sort of infrastructure. Maybe you can talk about this new reality of reduced funding and where opportunities might lie in terms of a collaborative approach in research. So over the past 12 years, the NIH has experienced a gradual loss of its purchasing power. They're down almost 25 percent below where they were in the year 2003. So it means that for scientists, it's literally the toughest time in decades to have a good research idea. So we have this conundrum here where we are pushing STEM education and we really believe in the power of science, but we're, we're starving it, essentially. Hmm. Right now, the NIH only can fund roughly one grant out of six, which is about half of what they used to be able to fund. Um, so we're just we're leaving a lot of opportunity on the table. This funding is critical, and it's critical because if we starve that scientific enterprise, there will be no cures and treatments to develop. Mm -hmm. Those philanthropy groups, um, we call them venture philanthropy, they still do not make up a very large piece of the funding pie. And out of that venture philanthropy model, we've just seen some breathtaking uh, advancements come. So it's it's powerful capital. People call it passion capital. Mm -hmm. uh, but it cannot supplant, you know, the, the vital mm -hmm. role of NIH. Well, Margaret, I want to maybe just take one more look at this issue of collaboration. We've entered the new arena of genomics and proteomics and the expansion of digital technologies and, and personalized medicine. But we've seen this kind of parallel wave of uh, innovation around patient engagement, certainly through organizations like patients like me. How is this advance in collaboration spurring new kinds of developments in biomedical research? You know, if you look at the role of patients over time, I would say that, it's, that that role has expanded dramatically in the past 40 years, where, you know, in healthcare delivery and research, we've seen this kind of ticking up of patient empowerment, if you will. But I wanted to kind of punctuate the point with a reminder that in the 1980s, during the HIV-AIDS, you know, the beginning of the epidemic, 
we witnessed you know dramatic transformation of the biomedical research system and and I would argue also healthcare delivery by HIV AIDS activists they demonstrated that you can bring attention to a cause but but a piece that faster cures has really tried to push forward is that it wasn't just about public disobedience and demonstrations it was about getting very smart on the science mm-hmm. and by getting smart those activists were able to demand change and get results. And we have a paper called Back to Basics that you can find on our website that will you know, kind of characterize this um, evolution. So what we see now are patients and organizations representing patients really being looked at more as partners in you know, kind of the R&D equation. So you reference some of the groups like Patients Like Me or Smart Patients. Um, there's a number of these types of groups that are allowing patients to engage in different ways, whether it's by speaking to one another, whether it's by donating their data to larger cohorts of of research. And we've seen this in spades. Faster Cures has a group called the TRAIN Network, which stands for the Research Acceleration and Innovation Network. Mm. And it's a group of venture philanthropy groups, and they come together and do uh, best practice sharing. So it you know, we on the list include uh, groups like the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation or the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. The list is long. And these groups believe that, you know, they're going to keep their eye on the prize of trying to fix their particular disease. So they've been doing a lot of resource and best practice sharing um, through some of the vehicles that Faster Cures has created. So, you know, an example of one of the benefits of one of these groups would be the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation's partnership over a period of time with a, a company called Vertex Pharmaceuticals. <laughs> and this resulted in, you know, a game-changing drug, which is called Colidico, uh, that that really has, you know, propelled forward the science of cystic fibrosis research and, you know, real things that patients can benefit from. So I think what you're seeing now with groups like patients like me is that you're there are platforms available for patients to share their real-world health experiences and data. And even recently, there was the announcement uh, that Apple made of their research kit. And this is really looking at how do you engage individuals in clinical research studies you know, through their, their mobile devices. So I think what we're going to keep seeing is more and more of this democratization of data. And there's a number of efforts that involve sort of public-private partnerships between government agencies and and not-for-profits. And it's very exciting because I think we're witnessing where we're going to see, I think, more rapid adoption of many of these different things that we've been talking about. We're speaking today with Margaret Anderson, Executive Director of Faster Cures, an action tank at the Milken Institute dedicated to removing barriers to medical progress by speeding up the medical research system. She's also a founding board member and past president of the Alliance for a Stronger FDA. Margaret, you've recently said that in spite of the criticisms often aimed at the FDA, and I think we've had a couple of those folks here on a radio show, your work has focused in on how to make the FDA function even faster and more efficiently than it currently does, but it's also quite complex. Tell our listeners more about the scope of the work of the FDA and what can be done to accelerate drug breakthroughs and shorten the research protocols. So Faster Cures, as you said, we've made it our policy priority to both advocate for more appropriated dollars, you know, financial resources for the FDA, um, as well as looking at some of the specific programs implemented by the FDA. 
This is an agency that regulates 25% of every consumer dollar, and it's just a critical component to bringing safe and effective medical solutions to patients. And the number has kind of wavered up and down a bit, but I live, for example, in Montgomery County, Maryland, and the school superintendent of Montgomery County, Maryland, at various times in the last, let's say, five years, has had a larger budget to deploy to the students in Montgomery County, Maryland, than the FDA commissioner has had to deploy for regulating 25 cents of every dollar. You know, the FDA has mounting pressures over time resulting from globalization, but they don't have the resources to really go, you know, trekking around and do everything that they would need and want. Um, They also have increasing statutory requirements that are put on them. You know, every time Congress asks them to do something new, um, they're given an extra responsibility, but not always the same money to go along with it. In order to make our you know, drugs come through the process as quickly as possible, uh, industry works with the agency to help fund some of that work. In the last user fee process, there was something called the Patient-Focused Drug Development Initiative that was created, and this is something that, that we've been very heavily involved in of late. It's extremely important to this idea of how do you engage patients more. So they were asked to do 20 disease-specific meetings, and more than half of those have been completed. The idea is how can you actually talk to patients to better understand experiences they're having with symptoms or lack of available therapies. So that's the beginning, and we've been working um, with the agency and with Congress to really try to look at how can we advance that science of patient input. Um, on, I will point out that in addition to the development of drugs and, and therapeutics, on the device side, there's been a lot of activity where they've really been working on this idea of the qualities of patient preferences and how do you bring that into um, review decisions. Um, and you know the FDA's made incredible strides forward. It's a tough agency because they are, um, you know, asked to be fast and efficient, but they're dealing with complex, mm-hmm. you know, applications. And you know, sometimes I think get put between a rock and a hard place where, you know, the headlines draw attention to something that may have been missed, and they, you know, might get conservative after that, saying, "Well, mm-hmm. gee, we don't want to have that happen again." So it's a very difficult agency to, I think, have to navigate through. And um, Dr. Peggy Hamburg just stepped down as the FDA commissioner Mm -hmm. and really did an outstanding job helping to lead them forward. Um, So I always like to say, if you you ever get a chance to meet somebody who works at the FDA, say thanks to them because (laughs) they have a tough job. We, We couldn't agree with you more. I wonder for our listeners if I could ask you to really try uh, and focus on, as you did in a recent piece in the Huffington Post, uh, it outlined some of the top medical research trends of 2015 that are poised to shift the old paradigm. Maybe for our listeners, just go through those top ones again, the more promising trends and how they bring about the faster cures that we're all seeking. Absolutely. So, you know, we do this every year to understand what's been going on, what, you know, what's the chatter out there. And it's very gratifying because we have the opportunity at Faster Cures to work with the entire biomedical research ecosystem and listen to a lot of the bright, innovative thinkers. Uh, we tend to be pretty spot on about what's, what's hot and what, what do we need to be you know, thoughtful about. And I would say that you know, the theme going forward has been collaboration, which we've talked about a bit today. There's also been this theme of 
a bipartisan quest for cures. So this 21st Century Cures initiative that, that I referenced is a remarkable opportunity. It's been led by uh, Chairman Fred Upton, but uh, really in partnership with Congresswoman Diana DeGette. And both of them have you know, deep expertise in uh, understanding complex issues related to biomedical research. And I think that if they can be successful in pushing this forward, it has to go into the Senate and you know, ultimately be signed into law. But if they can be successful, I, I really think it shows the American public that Washington can get something done, that Capitol Hill um, you know, is serious about advancing things important to the nation. Um, so this we see as just a huge opportunity. Um, is it going to be easy? No. And it, you know, they've released at first a 400-page draft, and then it went to a 200-page draft, and now it's back to 300 pages. But as we've been speaking through throughout this show, these issues are not easy. If they were easy, they would have been fixed already. <laughs> exactly our philosophy. So, you know, there's also another theme is this increased practice of venture philanthropy. I think that everyone will see more and more evidence that these groups are the little engines that could. Mm -hmm. They are fundraising their bottom line every year. They're, you know, through all those means, the walkathons, but they are targeting that capital very specifically. And they can take risks with that money that's uh -huh. a little bit different than, um, you know, some of the sort of, uh, you know, bread and butter, we've got to fund these particular science projects. Sure. So I think that's another area. I, I want to talk about that increased focus on patient engagement and the science of patient input. I think what, what started out, as I mentioned about the HIV AIDS activists, it started out in terms of advocacy, but it's a scientific discipline now. And it's really looking at how can you accommodate patient needs and preferences and put them into a process of developing, regulating, and delivering therapies. And I think there's a, you know, a growing community of people who are focused on it, trying to figure it out. And we have a, a specific program that's been looking at benefit and risk, as well as value and coverage, which I think is another really hot area that we're all seeing headlines about this, you know, looking at the cost of, you know, our, our therapeutics. So as we've talked about, getting a drug approved by regulators, it used to in some ways be the finish line. You know, if you've got FDA approval, yay, okay, that means patients can have access. That's not such a certain proposition anymore. Mm. Um, you now have to demonstrate the value to patients. And so Faster Cures is working with a lot of those disease foundations because they have concrete data about their patient populations. So they're able to say the um, introduction of this particular product completely changed the paradigm of how these people are living their lives. They're going back to work. They're you know, productive members of society now without symptoms. So they can show the value proposition. Patient groups will be playing an increasingly critical role in closing the gap between the evidence that regulators need to just approve a product and then the evidence and information that payers are going to need to make their decisions. We've been speaking today with Margaret Anderson, Executive Director of Faster Cures, an action tank based at the Milken Institute, which is dedicated to removing barriers to medical breakthroughs by accelerating the pace of research. You can learn more about her work by going to fastercures.org, or you can follow her on Twitter at Margaret AINDC. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
Conversations on Healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we recently looked into whether marijuana is a gateway drug, as New Jersey Governor Chris Christie claimed in saying that he would crack down on marijuana sales and use in states that legalize marijuana for recreational use. It turns out the science on this topic is far from settled. There are correlations between marijuana use and other drugs, but there is no conclusive evidence of causation that using marijuana causes the use of other drugs. Studies have found that those who smoke marijuana are more likely than those who don't to use other drugs. The correlation is there, but there's not evidence of causation that smoking marijuana causes one to use other drugs. A 1999 report from the Institute of Medicine said exactly that. Marijuana use, quote, typically precedes rather than follows the use of other drugs. But the Institute of Medicine said it doesn't appear to be the cause of serious drug abuse or even the most significant factor in predicting drug abuse. We spoke with an expert at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is part of the National Institutes of Health, who told us the scientific community was still debating this complicated issue, which has been contentious over the years. For more on the studies that have been conducted on this topic, see our website at factcheck.org. I'm Lori Robertson. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Diseases from unclean water cause more deaths in parts of the world than all forms of violence, including war. And of the 30,000 people who die every week from unsafe water and lack of sanitation, 90% are children. There's plenty of NGOs that are digging wells in water-starved sub-Saharan Africa, all with good intentions. But a bunch of young entrepreneurs decided to join forces and go the extra mile. At any given time, up to 30% of the tens of thousands of wells across the African continent can be out of commission, and sometimes they never get repaired. Yeah, sometimes they have trouble like collecting funding and managing that well in order to pay for the spare parts and the labor to install it. And a lot of times there's no solid, stable infrastructure in place that they could reach out to if they need extra support. Robert Lee is the director of special programs at Charity Water, an innovative nonprofit privately funded in a way that every dollar donated goes directly to building and maintaining wells. He says they decided to rig all the wells with GPS markers and special sensors that send a message to a command center when a well is starting to malfunction. This is usually a community hand pump well. So we have to make a custom solution that'll fit, that'll last a really long time. So the batteries don't need to be replaced. And then it has enough smarts to be able to detect from the data what's really going on. So the sensor is, is it fits in an Africa well, um, the most common well found in Africa. And it just measures and monitors the, the amount of water flowing through it. Um, when, when that falls below normal, 
um, it sends alert out that right away saying, hey, something's wrong, and sends a message directly to the team that's in charge of that, that water point, saying, like, you should go out and um, check, check, check to see if there's something wrong and repair it if there is. We're putting phone numbers for them to call on the water point. We're giving them training, motorcycle tools, and helping build their financial structures so that they could be self-supporting. And, yeah, enabling them with a combination of infrastructure as well as technology through the sensors that we're building, the electronic tablet survey systems, uh, as well as a software basis so that they could be able to manage their staff as well as all the repairs that, that come in. Often, within days, a trained well repair person is dispatched to the broken well, which in many cases is the well that provides the only clean water for an entire community. And in Africa alone, people, mostly women and girls, spend an estimated 40 billion hours a year collecting and transporting water to their villages. I don't know if you've ever carried a 20-liter jerry can, or two of them for that matter. It's not easy terrain that they typically walk across, and it's usually for long distances. And the effects of it are like women aren't able to take care of their family. Uh, children aren't able to go to school. There was even this one tragic story where there was this woman who carried her water in, I believe it was like a clay jar, and right when she was getting back to the village, she, she accidentally dropped it. She tripped and dropped it and uh, ended up hanging herself because it was so demoralizing for her. It's one of the stories we tell, and we immediately got working on getting them uh, clean water in that village. Charity Water's alert system puts the pumps back in action, supplying not only clean water for drinking and sanitation, but for small local farms as well, which feed entire villages and provide a source of income for the farmers. Charity Water, building thousands of wells across sub-Saharan Africa, deploying a digital alert system to warn of a well's malfunction and sending help to repair it, ensuring that clean water continues to flow into a community. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.